So if you would, please open your Bibles with me back to Mark's Gospel this morning. Mark's Gospel. It's been a while since I was in the Gospel of Mark, and and today we will find that we have made our way up to a seemingly familiar-sounding miracle in Mark once again in Mark chapter 8. And here at the beginning of Mark chapter 8 and verses 1 to 9, Mark will unveil the miracle of Jesus feeding 4,000 men, not counting the women and children, and feeding them with only seven loaves and a few small fish. That probably sounds familiar to you this morning. And if it does, it's probably because this miracle seems to be much like the account of Jesus feeding 5,000 back in Mark 6. But I'm here to tell you this morning that though it sounds similar, the differences here are quite startling. And we're going to look at those differences and delve into them, but not today. Okay? Not today. I'm I'm teasing you out a couple more weeks until I preach again. But today, here's what I want to do. I want to try and help us really grasp and understand the magnitude of what is happening in Mark 8. So look with me there at this text, 1 to 9. And, and as I read it, pay, pay close attention to what you think differs or sets it apart from the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark 6. Because, like I said, I'll get to those differences eventually. But for now, here's what I want to do. I just want to whet your appetite so that you'll dig deeper into the passage this week and be freshly amazed today by the revelation that we will discover in this familiar-sounding miracle. And yet, when you look at this, I hope you see that this miracle here is absolutely astounding. It's set apart. It's set apart in a very particular way, in a very specific way, from all the rest of the miracles in Mark's gospel up to this point. Because this miracle reveals Jesus as God's compassion incarnate. Look with me there in verse 1. In those days when again a crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there was about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. Sounds familiar. Sounds very similar, yet it's very different. And so today, what I want to do is is I want to have you meditate upon this text in in a very particular way. I want you to, to think about it as we approach actually getting into it next time, and I want you to... Think about what I'm going to try to unpack before you to lead you to that message today. Because when I do this, what my real desire is, is for you to see the magnitude of what is taking place in this particular miracle in Mark 8 that sets it apart. But for us to be able to do that, I think we have to do something else. I think we have to do something in a bit of a review here. I think we need to recall what Jesus has already been doing up to this point in Mark's gospel. And I think we need to ask some very, I think, critical and important questions about what we have seen so far, specifically the miracles themselves this morning. And so here's two questions you need to be asking yourself as you look at this text and all the rest of 
the miracles. Number one would be, what was the ultimate purpose of Jesus' miracles in Mark's gospel? And the second question is, what sets this miracle of Jesus apart from the others that we find in Mark's gospel? We're going to begin by just thinking about the first question, okay? What was the purpose of Jesus' miracles, not only in Mark's gospel, but also in Matthew and Luke and John? What was the purpose of Jesus' miracles? Have you pondered that often? Or have you just looked at these as individual narratives and stories about how wonderful Jesus is, which is true? But is there some significance beyond that for us to understand in order to see the magnitude of what's taking place in Mark 8? I think there is. So to answer the question, what was the purpose of Jesus' miracles, I think we have to go to the Apostle John because he gives us the answer. The Apostle John calls the miracles of Jesus signs. And you can see that in John's gospel itself, in John chapter 2, verse 11. Here, here we see John call the miracles of Jesus signs. And he, he says that right after, right after Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. In John 2, 11, it says, This, the first of his signs... Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So what John's saying, in other words, is this. John's telling us that, that Jesus' miracles were signs that would reveal his divine power and testify to who he truly is. And he is truly, according to John and Mark and Matthew and Luke, he is truly the Son of God. So these signs testify to Jesus' divinity, but in so doing, here's what else they do. They also give us something we really need to have and understand. They give us a revelation of the heart of God. They reveal to us the nature of God. This is Jesus, God the Son incarnate. And I think that's probably one of the most astounding aspects of Jesus' miracles. Look at John again. John makes it really clear that that's what Jesus is doing in his life, in his incarnation. In John 1.1, it begins this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then in verse 14, it says, And the Word, this is speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. Then notice these next two verses. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Then verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him Known. Verse 18 is telling us that in Jesus' incarnation, he is unveiling, making known to us, revealing to us who God is. And how does he do that? He does that in many different ways. But particularly related to Mark, he does it through miracles. The miracles that we see there. These are signs of his divinity and his very nature, the nature of God himself being manifest to us. So here's what I want to do. Today in, in Mark's gospel, I want us to review and unpack just what Jesus' miracles are revealing to us about the heart of God. Because I really truly think that is, the, that is a huge part of what Jesus is teaching his disciples on this journey they are going on with him. And I hope what, what they learn, and they were to learn, in Mark 8, 1 to 9, I hope that that will make a deep impression upon us, and I hope that it will shape the way in which we witness to others about Jesus, God's compassion incarnate. So that's my goal this morning. And I want to get there, and I want to get to the details next, but, but today, here's how I want to get there. I want us to begin to answer that first question I gave to you in a more detailed way. And so the question we should really be asking here in Mark 8 is this. 
What do Jesus' miracles in Mark's gospel tell us about God's nature? What do these miracles tell us about God's nature? Well, I think there's, there's really one overarching attribute that, that Jesus' miracles highlight in Mark's gospel. And, and, and that is that our God is compassionate. Or as the Old Testament and even the text we read out of the Psalms this morning, uh, as it would phrase it, our God is full of steadfast love, loving kindness. He's full of loving kindness. And so today what I want to do is simply highlight that glorious attribute that Jesus manifests by reviewing how Jesus' miracles have already, in Mark's gospel, up to this point, have already revealed God's compassion to us. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to chapter 1. And I want us to do that because this is the first account of God's compassion being revealed through Jesus' actions that we find in Mark's gospel. And it's in Mark 1 beginning in verse 29, Mark 1:29, And I think that we should look at this because here, here's, what, here's what's happening. Jesus is showing us here through this miracle how he is going to reveal God's compassion. And he does that by his willingness to care for some very unlovely people here. By his willingness to care for, for the diseased and the demon-possessed. And we see that in verses 29 to 34a. And immediately, immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Now, like I said, this is the first visible, if you will, first visible manifestation of Jesus revealing God's compassion. And and I really want us to linger here a little bit more than I will on the other passages we will look at this morning. So don't don't panic at how long I take here as opposed to the other places. But this is what I want us to do. I want us to linger here because in this first visible display of Jesus' compassion in Mark, I think what we're learning here is very important. I think that we're learning about God's compassion. And we, we learn about it to begin with and to understand where we're going in Mark 8. We learn about it through the actions of Jesus. And I think these actions are significant and informative, and I hope to be edifying to us as we come to Mark 8 later. But beginning earlier in this narrative here, before we come to verse 29, we have Jesus in Capernaum, and on the Sabbath, in verse 21, he enters the synagogue and is teaching. And they were astonished by his teaching, it says, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man who was with an unclean spirit who cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. The unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is the day that set up the account of what's happening in verses 29 to 34a. And if you've ever been in any kind of ministry, you would look at verses 21 to 28 and go, I would go home and go to bed. This would have been physically, mentally, and spiritually exhausting. You're not talking about a 30-minute service. And then battling with this demon-possessed man, all these things taking place, teaching with authority here, transforming the minds of those who are accustomed to their scribes' teaching by showing them what God has said. So Jesus would have been completely physically worn out at this point. Verse 27 says, these people, though, 
they, they were coming to him in verses 29 to 34 because people had found out this, this man is different than any other man that's been in the synagogue. He comes and he, he's preaching with new teaching, with authority. It's fresh. It's powerful because his teaching was full of divine power and it was recognized by these people. And the news of his power was even magnified in the casting out of the demon out of this man. And so these people got excited. But for Jesus, this just had to be taxing. This had to be difficult. But look what happens next after this exhausting day of ministry in 29 to 31, right? He's coming to Peter's house. Why is he going to Peter's house? Well, he's not just going for a luncheon. He's not going for coffee. He's going to rest. He was God incarnate in human flesh, and he got tired. He went to relax. But what happens? He gets no relaxing. Verse 30 tells us that right after he gets there, he finds out that Peter's mother-in-law has a fever. Well, he, he didn't know that directly. They came and told him about it. They're concerned about her, so they come to the one that they know is full of power and compassion. So they come to him, and Peter here tells us that this woman had a pariso, or Mark tells us she had a pariso, a fever. Basically, she's burning up. This is not a 99-degree fever. This is more like a 105 fever, okay? Dr. Luke helps us understand that a little more clearly in his gospel account of this. Luke tells us that she was in the grip of a high fever. This was serious. And Mark tells us that these disciples when they saw her condition, turned immediately to the one who had both divine authority and divine compassion. They turned to him, the great physician, to cure this dear woman that they loved. And look at Jesus' response in verse 31. This, This blows my mind because I know who he is. I know his power. But yet, how he wields that power is amazing to me. He came to that woman, it says. He came and took her by the hand. That's astounding. You know what you're seeing in that? You're seeing the tender mercy of God incarnate. Verse 31 tells us he touched her to heal her. That, that's just beyond what I can grasp. Why did he do that? Why did Jesus do that? He could have simply spoken, be healed, and she would have been delivered from this fever. But that's not what he does. Instead, Mark tells us that Jesus personally came to this sick woman and he brought her not only his authority, but his mercy. What's he do? He raises her up. How does he do it? He raises her up by his kingdom authority, yet he does it with gentle hands. His physical, caring hands reach down and tenderly touch this woman. This is astounding when you know who Jesus is. This is amazing. He, he condescended. He, he shows his love for humanity in reaching out to this dear woman and caring for her personally. He could have decreed it, but instead he stooped and physically provided help for her, this touch of the Redeemer. Now, in that, I think there's, there's an, a really an important lesson for the disciples, and there's an important lesson for us. We can't heal, neither could they in themselves heal people as Christ did, but we can and, and we should reach out to hurting people with this kind of Christ-like tenderness in their time of need he's called us to be his hands and his feet he's called us to use our mouth to proclaim his word and do so boldly but he's also called us to personally care for others mercifully and why why does he do that why should we do that because that's how he has dealt with us he has dealt with us with great compassion look at verse 32 there in chapter 1 This is the next thing that happens. That evening at sundown, I mean, these disciples just, look, I mean, we struggle with these guys sometimes, and this is one of those places for me. He's tired. He's worn out. They know that like anyone else. So they brought to him all 
who were sick and oppressed by demons. <laughs> I mean, and I, I mean, still, I'm just thinking humanly here about what would I do in this situation? I mean, yeah, I want to help this poor woman. I'm staying at her house, right? But look, these guys can wait till tomorrow. I mean, I am tired. I'll try to help them, but I can't do it now. I got to rest. But not Jesus. Here's here's what's happening. Again, the Sabbath was now over, and now all those in that area had been hearing about what was going on there, and that news had begun to travel from the synagogue out. And and the testimony of Jesus' teaching and his authority is now spreading. And who's it spreading to? Well, obviously, it's spreading to the hopeless, the sick and the demon-possessed. I mean, these, these people needed far more than their spiritual leaders of the day could provide them, right? And so what they do? They sought one who had something these leaders here do not have. They sought someone who had divine authority that they had heard about, and he had divine compassion for the hurting. Just think about the people he received that night at the end of this long day. These people were ceremonial, ceremonially defiled. They were desperate. These are people who understood they need God's mercy. They need God's compassion. So they come to him. They come to him in their time of need. That's good news for every needy person. Have you ever thought about, you know, how odd this seems to me, or to you, I hope, maybe, when you look at this? I mean, it's not often you go into a town and you're mobbed by sick and demon-possessed people. I mean, that seems pretty odd, right? It's not like a normative thing. So have you ever asked yourself, what's going on here? Why are there so many sick and oppressed people here in that region at that time? Well, just so you understand the context, according to history, this region was known for its hot mineral waters. And the people were attracted to those waters to find healing through the healing properties contained in those. So, so at this time, the time that Jesus is there, these people were there for that reason. They're attracted to this great hope they have in these waters. So they come from every part of the country to that area. And, and that's why they're gathering. But little did they know that there in that region, they would encounter one who was full of God's compassion. The great physician himself, Jesus Christ. That's what's happening when you come to verse 33. The whole city was there at the door. So that night, there at Peter's home, here's what's going on. It's being mobbed by the diseased and the demon-possessed. I mean, this is a great crowd to have at your home, right? It's not what you would want. Not the crowd you desire to be around at the time. I mean, listen, if you're sick, I like staying away from you at a distance and waving at you. I don't like hugging you, okay? That's just, I mean, I don't like that. Um, I don't think they liked it back then either, but these are the people who showed up at his door. Have you really thought about what this would have been like? Stop and think about this. At this time period, it's not like there's a lot of really great hygiene products out there at this time period, right? not a great places you can go to and, and clean up and take medicine to feel better, to at least look halfway decent when you go to the doctor. No, there's nothing. So just, just imagine, imagine the sight of these people, what they look like, demon-possessed, diseased. Now imagine the sound that they would make, the moaning, the groaning, the convulsions. Imagine the smell that they would emanate. This is a miserable mob. Just imagine all that, though, and then, then think. Think about what's going on when Jesus sees this. Imagine the Creator's sorrow when he sees, when he sees this miserable, miserable mob with his incarnate eyes. He, he is literally seeing the sorrow of sin incarnate in their sicknesses and their spiritual oppression. And so how does he respond? How does God respond in the flesh To this mob, we see it in verse 34. An exhausted Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. This, this to me, is a great expression of God's compassion incarnate. I mean, like I said, Jesus was physically exhausted at this point. 
So he has to ask why, why, why he's done his duty. He's done what he needed to do in the synagogue. He's helped Peter's mom. Why does he continue on through the night all night long? I think it's what's implied here all night long laboring like this. He was the expression of the compassion of God in the flesh. This is the first visible account of Jesus's actions displaying God's incarnate compassion. Now, from from this, we're going to move on rather quickly through the rest. But from this, this first visible display of God's compassion in this miracle, we move on to see God's compassion revealed by the way in which Jesus heals a leper in Mark 40 to 42. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, begging and bowing, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean then. It's very clear. Moved with pity, compassion. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. What an amazing picture of God's compassion incarnated. Jesus is saying, I'm willing to take all that you are to give you what I have. He pulls the man into his bosom. He touches this leper. And that very touch doesn't defile Jesus, but instead it makes this man clean. This is a great picture of God's compassion incarnate. He reveals it by the way in which he embraces the leper. Then in chapter 2 of Mark, verses 3 to 5 and 10 to 12, Jesus will reveal God's compassion in the healing of a paralytic. Look with me there, 3 to 5. When they came... And they came, rather, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And then go down to verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Immediately he rose and he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. I love this story. I mean, there's a lot of compassion being expressed in this text. First, it's the the four men who bring their friend to Jesus and literally rip the roof off the house drop the man down in front of Jesus while he's preaching. And instead of rebuking them, he actually stops preaching and addresses the need of the hurting man. His greatest need was forgiveness of sins, unity back, united back to God. But then his second issue was his paralysis. And Jesus says, look, just so everybody's clear, let me tell you who I am. I can forgive sins because they've been against me. And I can make this man walk, be healed. We're seeing great pictures of God's compassion revealed in how Jesus is dealing with these hurting people. The next picture we see of this is in how Jesus heals a man with a withered hand in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. And he entered the synagogue, and a man there with a withered hand, man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Now, there's no compassion in verse 2 at all expressed by those who are judging Jesus. And so Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, come here. (laughs) And he said to them, to those who were judging him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? He shut them up, but they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. His hand was restored. We see a lot of expressions of God's attributes in nature here. We see the the wrath of God in just this judgment against his accusers. But in that same moment, we see his mercy, his compassion for this hurting man being manifest, and and how he he publicly addressed his need. He stepped forth and said, come here, I care about you. Then next, Jesus reveals the compassion of God as he raises a dead child and restores the health of a neglected woman 
in Mark chapter 5. I won't read all of this, but 12 to 34. Let me read a few of these and tie it together. Beginning there in 512, we find Jairus. I'm sorry. Hang on one second. I inverted those verses. Sorry. Let me back up a little bit. In verse 21. We see that as Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd had gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. Jesus goes with him. And then on the way to this man's home, Jesus is interrupted, as we remember, by, the, by this woman who, who comes to him with an issue of blood, hemorrhaging, and touches his garment. And he takes the time to actually address her and care for her on his way to raise a child from the dead. And then when you come to the end of this chapter, you see that happen. In verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people wailing or weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, again, taking her by the hand. He said to her, Talitha kume, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. I love verse 43. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. The divine attribute of compassion here mixed with his power is astounding to me. The girl's been dead. She's got to be hungry now. And Jesus actually addresses that need. This is what the disciples are seeing. They are seeing the manifestation of God's compassion being revealed through Jesus' actions. Let me back up again, back to where I wanted to take you in Mark 5. To another miracle that stands out from the others in many ways. It's it's a unique revelation of God's compassion as Jesus delivers the demoniac. Where does he do it at? In a Gentile land. Mark 5, in verse 14. At the beginning of this, we know what's going on. Jesus arrives there in this Gentile region. And a demon-possessed man immediately runs to him and basically falls down and says to him, Be away. Go away. I don't want you here. But Jesus ends up casting the demon out of the man, the man that no one could control, no one could chain, no one could bind. Jesus, with a word, set the man free from his bondage to Satan. And then in verse 14, it says, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus. And saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs that he cast the demons into. And these people, these pagan Gentiles in this region, save the demon-possessed man who was set free. They began to beg Jesus to depart From their region. The compassion just began in the deliverance. It goes further to be exposed to us in the last part of this. As he was getting into the boat, the man, the man who'd been set free, who had been possessed with demons, begged him that he might be with him. That's that's legitimate. That's where I would want to be. Get me out of this place. Take me with you, Jesus. In verse 19, though, it says, And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. God's incarnate compassion is being expressed through this, if you will, 
micro great commission that he gives to the first Gentile in this land to come to be set free by him. So he does. He, he goes away. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This ties very directly into where we're going to go in Mark 8. This man's testimony began to spread, paving the way for what we see happening in Mark 8. But after this, the, the next outstanding miracle that we see is found in Mark 6, the one that seems to parallel Mark 8. It's the feeding of the 5,000. And here again, the disciples behold God's compassion revealed through Jesus' actions. Let me begin reading just in the latter half of this narrative because it should be freshly on your mind from the last time we were there. It says in verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. Pay close attention to what's going on there. How did they see what he expressed in verse 34? He had compassion on them. How do we know that? Does he say it? Never says it. His actions revealed it. Now, from here, we come to chapter 7. And in chapter 7, everything seems to radically change in Christ's display of God's compassion. Because here, up to this point, up to chapter 7... With the exception of what we saw happening there in Mark 5, all the other displays of God's compassion in Christ's actions, they have been focused on the lost sheep of Israel. But here in Mark 7, Jesus begins to unveil a glorious revelation to his disciples. He is, he is now here in chapter 7, he's going to now clearly reveal to them God's compassion was not reserved for the Jews only, but rather God's compassion is granted to the needy, whether they be Jew or Gentile. So here in Mark 7, Jesus begins to teach his disciples a critically important lesson about their future great commission. To go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations as witnesses, as witnesses of Jesus, the incarnation of God's compassion in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Just just look here in in Mark seven at how Jesus's actions revealed that to them to turn them into the witnesses that they would be called to be in the future. There in Mark 7, 24 to 30. I think Jesus' compassion here probably was more than these men could grasp and more than they could truly handle in the sense of the location and who this is being expressed to. It had to astound these disciples. 24 to 30. And from there, from Capernaum, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. And immediately a woman whose little girl had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, 
For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. He said to her, For this statement, this, this expression of great faith, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Church, there's significance in this woman's petition when you come to Mark chapter 8 and their full satisfaction. Jesus is saying they're not going to just get the crumbs. They're going to get the bread. They're going to get it all. All who are needy will be satisfied in me. This had to astonish these men when they heard him speaking to her this way and blessing her by healing her daughter. That astonishment that they felt was just the beginning. It would only increase as they traveled further into this Gentile land. It increased greatly in the next thing that happened, in the great miracle that we see happening in Mark seven thirty-one to 37. There Jesus deeply sighs and heals a man who is deaf and had a speech impediment. And in doing that, he reveals God's compassion for Gentiles once again. This is just blowing their mind one upon another. Gentile being blessed by the Messiah, whom they thought was only Israel's Messiah. But I'm going to tell you today, he is our Messiah. The needy come to the Messiah and are satisfied. This, this is what we see happening here. 31, they returned from the region of Tyre and Sidon and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd, this is such a personal, compassionate act. Privately, he put his fingers into his ears. He's speaking to him in a language he can understand, sign language. And after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more they zealously proclaimed it. They were all astonished beyond measure, it says, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I'm sure, I'm sure that the disciples were probably far more astonished than the Gentile observers at this point. That is, until you come to the next thing that we see Jesus reveal. What happens next in Mark 8 what happens next here was the most shocking revelation of God's compassion they had ever witnessed in all their travels with Jesus. Because up, up until now, up until now, the disciples had only, only observed Jesus' incarnating of God's compassion through his miracles. And what they observed was primarily only focused on the people of Israel. But here in Mark 8, everything changes. They're in a Gentile setting. And listen, saints, they do not merely observe God's compassion through Jesus' actions, not at all. In Mark 8, we learn that they hear Jesus' compassion for the first time declared in his messianic ministry. He declares it openly. He declares his heart, the divine compassion of God that was within him. He verbally voices this to those who were there. And who were they? They were those Gentiles, the people of this region. Now, now look at that passage again. This time, look at it with new eyes in light of what we've already seen and how different this is. The first verbal declaration of God the Son's compassion. And who does he express it to? Gentiles. Well, that's good news. In those days, when again a crowd had gathered, same region, and they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. Because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. This is amazing. This is shocking. This is glorious. Before, it was the disciples who initiated, hey, we got to get out of here so we can go eat. Here, Jesus says, I have compassion. Find them something to eat. It's Jesus who steps in and Jesus declaring this. This is radically important to us. That's what sets this miracle apart from Mark 6. 
Here, here's what sets it apart. This miracle reveals for the first time that Jesus has come to satisfy the needs of lost and defiled Gentile sinners as only he, the Son of God, can do. He shows them compassion. Compassion to a crowd of pagan Gentiles. The unclean, the unworthy, the defiled, those who need God's mercy most. I think this is good news today especially for those who are defiled by sin's stain. And I hope, I hope that Jesus' declaration for us as Christians, I hope it tempers and directs how we as, as mercied sinners now think about and approach people that seem to be hopeless, lost causes, too far gone, hardened by sin, defiled, deplorable, I hope, I hope what we see Jesus doing for those who don't deserve it, like he did for us, I hope we see there is no limit to the compassion he can express to those in need who look to him for satisfaction. I hope you see that. I hope it tempers the way in which you approach people and think about people that everyone else says they're hopeless, they're too hard to reach, too far gone. I think, I think that that's what this miracle should do for us. I think it should make us remember when we look at this, this people that are hearing for the first time, I have compassion on you. I think we need to remember such were some of us. We belong right there with them. But we have been washed. We have been made clean by the compassionate blood of Christ at the cross. And what Jesus did for us there, I believe to be the greatest revelation of God's compassion imaginable. Saints, that that miracle, the miracle that Christ revealed to us at the cross, that's what should now drive us to what people consider to be hopeless sinners. It should drive us to go to the deplorable and do it with great joy because because all we got to do is look at our own testimony. We personally know that they are not beyond the reach of God's compassion. It has reached us. And the miracle that we see taking place here should remind us of that. Because all the miracles, like I said, up to now in Mark, they, they reveal the far reach of God's compassion. And it's magnified here. But this isn't the last time we see God's compassion expressed in Mark's gospel to unworthy and needy people. Jesus' greatest revelation of God's compassion is yet to come. There's another place where Jesus lifts up his voice and loudly proclaims, and clearly displays God's compassion for the defiled. Let's look at that. We find that in Mark chapter 15. He lifts up his voice here and declares and reveals divine compassion toward us. And also reveals he has offered an abundant sacrifice that will satisfy us for eternity through what he expresses here in his flesh on the cross. Mark 15 beginning in verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the cry that we should scream. But because Jesus cried it out in our place, Receiving God's wrath, we can now sing of God's grace. This is the cry of the damned. And Jesus mercifully takes our place, showing us what God's compassion truly looks like. It is displayed most clearly and declared most powerfully at the cross. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry. John helps us to understand what that cry was. It was, It is finished. And he breathed his last. Saints, that's where Mark 8 is pointing us. 
That is ultimately what the miracle in Mark 8 should point us to in order to nourish our souls and encourage us to take that spiritual nourishment that we feed on in the gospel and go and share it with others so that they too may feast on the bread of life and be satisfied forevermore in Christ. Church, the compassionate miracles of Jesus, though historical, Those are all but appetizers of the spiritual feast that Christ gives to those who trust in him. Here's how one theologian put it as I close. The healing miracles, historical though they were, are really spiritual parables for us. They are parables that carry our minds back to Eden and the awful effects of Adam's sin. And they are parables that carry our minds forward to see the glory of Jesus, the second Adam and the king of God's kingdom who came to heal the souls and bodies of his people. So, saints, this miracle in Mark 8 and all the miracles previous, they are meant simply to whet our appetite for Jesus' ultimate revelation of his divine compassion at the cross, that he would grant to people like us, pagan, Gentile, lost and defiled. And through that act of compassion, he grants us something we could never imagine. He grants us a never-ending, all-satisfying feast from God's grace and forgiveness and love. Because Jesus' compassionate sacrifice on the cross is what cleansed our spiritually leprous hearts. It's what freed us from Satan's power. It's what opened our spiritually deaf ears to hear God's voice. It's what set our spiritually mute tongues free so that we could sing God's praise now and for all eternity. And his sacrifice, his compassionate sacrifice, it is what granted spiritually dead and starving sinners abundant life in him that will fully satisfy our souls now and for all eternity. Because Jesus is the true bread of life, God's manna from heaven, the incarnation of God's compassion. And may we, who have received that bread of life, may we joyfully feast on that this week and then go share our feast with others and do so with Christ-like compassion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the revelation of Jesus that we find in Mark's gospel. I pray that it would truly temper, direct, guide us as we seek to be faithful, mercied missionaries of your grace and proclaim the marvelous works of Christ and the most marvelous work he ever displayed in taking our place upon the cross and rising on the third day to justify us. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the compassion we see here. We pray that it would transform us more and more into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.